Hey everyone, this is Augustus Cho. Welcome to part two of our previous episode. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. episode uh, we discussed a little bit about why you decided to put away your journal for a while right and at the, around that time 2011 uh, you mentioned that your husband had a surgery and some bad experience and that kind of opened up something in within you so do you want to elaborate on that and tell us what that you was know, actually I realized that I didn't tell the story right I put it away twice the first time was much earlier on um, and that's really that's what this story has to do with. Um, the first time I was working very intensively with someone when this writing first came to me and he was all about it. He was so entranced and so interested and so on board. Um, and um, I don't really want to say anything negative. Something that, that, that relationship did not work out. And um and it ended in a really bad way for me. And that's when I put it away the first time. Um, so um, I put it away for several years and I actually didn't think I was ever going to come back to it. And then I got married to my second husband and he had a surgery and I had never told him about it either. Um he had a surgery and he was just in a lot of pain afterwards. And for some reason, I mean, he was just so open because of the pain and he, he was just so, you know, like, like, why is this happening to me and kind of things. And, um, and I just opened up about everything that I knew about what our soul was doing here in some of the trials of our life. And that's what actually um, got me going the second time. And, um, and then the third, the third time was really after the incident that I told you about sharing it um, at this at this organization. So yeah, I put it away for many years actually uh, before I before that time with my husband. Um, okay, um, yeah. you, uh, you talk about soul as as in S O U L and the purpose of soul. And uh, I'm going to quote you, which is interesting. You said that quote all pain being soul calling us home um mm -hmm. how, how do you associate pain and, and calling us home yeah i think that was one of the very first messages i got because you know as i said when i first started this this connection i was in an enormous amount of pain myself and i was in physical pain too i had something that no one ever diagnosed that eventually went away um all pain is soul calling you home was was the basic message of that as it as i understood it was that in everything that we're experiencing even the things that are the toughest even the things that are the most challenging or painful or scary 
there is something for us to learn. There's, there's, a, there's a teacher inside every experience. And if we can look to that, that's, that's, the soul is trying to tell us something. Mm-hmm through all of our experiences, both the positive ones and the ones that are really difficult. And then it takes it out of the world of like, well, why is this happening to me? Or I must be a bad person if things aren't working out or that kind the judgment, it takes the judgment out of it. I mean, I, I, I think I know what you're saying. Um, in the end, all of us are trying to get back home to our soul, to our soul right. group and soul family. Right. So you know all about that. But what I was, what caught my uh, attention was, you picked us specifically pain. Mm-hmm. And that was quite interesting. And I, I get, I think I get it what you're saying innately. So, but I'm hoping you can expound on it and say, is that something within certain characteristics of us as uh, soulful creatures that specifically uh, reminds us that we don't belong here? Is that what you're saying? No, because I think we do belong here. I think one of the things that I really came to understand is that if you're in a body, you're supposed to be in one. And if you're on the earth, we're supposed to be here for the time that we're here. Um, So I think, I think the, the meaning of all pain is soul calling you home is more like um, the, the, I think being mortal is painful. You know, and so it's coming to terms with pain on all levels and mortality being the biggest one, you know, that that are if, if you know, the way my my messages came to me, they distinguish soul consciousness from ego consciousness, personality consciousness, not that ego consciousness is bad, it's just different. And it operates differently than soul consciousness operates. Mm-hmm. And in our ego consciousness, we don't want pain. You know, of course we don't. Um, and pain serves a certain purpose. It like physical pain, you know, if you go too close to a fire, your body tells you to move away because it hurts. And so pain helps you move back into the safe zone for your existence on a physical level. Or if you have pain in your body, you know, you try to get help. Maybe you need your appendix out or whatever. I mean, if we didn't have that pain, mm-hmm. sure. we would just die, right? And mm-hmm. so what I understood is that pain on a psychic, emotional, spiritual, whatever level, however you want to describe that, is also calling us to get back into the safe zone of our existence, which ultimately is our connection to our soul and spirit and oneness. Okay. Does that make sense? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I understand it. Um, you said earlier that mortality is part of the pain, but for me, mortality is actually freedom from pain because that's it. You check out and you go home. Okay. Right. I mean, that's it. And, and uh, then, you know, the saying that um, we are not physical creatures uh, experiencing spiritual experience, but, you know, we are actually spiritual beings experiencing physical experience, something to that effect. Right, right. And I, I 100% that. I agree with that. Yeah, I think um, that's I agree to. Okay, that's very good. I, I just wanted you to explain that, what, what you meant by that quote, all pain is soul calling us home. I thought it was kind of a, a profound and, and kind of deep, so I just wanted yeah. to give you an opportunity. But yeah. let's talk about your... Uh, book, latest book called America in Therapy. Yeah. And you have a very interesting premise. So I'm going to be quiet, let you tell us about it. Give us the whole, go ahead. 
Yeah. Well, the premise, I, I alluded to the premise earlier, and that is that, you know, one of the big things that I learned as a psychotherapist, but and as a client, as doing my own work, is that the family systems we live in are such profound conditioning agents to how we think about ourselves, how we think about, you know, what the expectations of our life are, how we feel, um, our the role models of coping mechanisms that we learn, the role models for male-female relationships. I mean, you name it. We have profound conditioning from the family systems that we live in. And the beginning of sort of that idea psychologically is the family of origin. But I think that whole understanding has expanded to include our whole environment, our whole environment is part of our family system, whether it's the way the school is run or the way your church um, organizes, you know, what um, or teaches you about what's good and what's bad and what's what's going to get you to heaven or what you have to do in your business environment to survive. So all of those um, groupings of people, large and small, can be looked at through the lens of family systems dynamics and what we understand about family systems dynamics, which is quite a bit at this point in the world of psychology. So, you know, a story I like to tell is of a little girl who came to therapy, was brought to therapy for wetting the bed. And um, I usually would meet with the parents first and just, you know, get an idea. What do you think's going on with your child? Um, is there anything, you know, you want to tell me about what you think is affecting her? You know, what's, what's it like at home? Everything was fine. They had no idea. Um, and so then I had the whole family come in and I did something called a family sculpture. And this is a technique, you know, a well-known technique in family therapy. And basically what you do is, and, and there were siblings. So that was the child, her siblings, and the parents. And basically all you do is you just um, ask each person to take a turn and organize the family into something that they think about the family or something that they want to express about the family. And they put, you know, position people in different parts of the room and they tell them what the scene is. And then they give each person one line. So the parents went, the siblings went, nothing, just all benign family stuff. And the one who was wetting the bed, the little girl went last and she put her mother on one side of the room and her father on the other side of the room. And she had them scream at each other to stop drinking and smoking dope. Wow. So, so this is like a classic story. You would never know that if you didn't do, if you didn't look at the family system, right? Um, and, you know, and then of course, you know, the whole thing unraveled after that and the work really was with the parents and not with, I did a little bit of work with the child, but I mostly worked with the parents. So that's the lens. You know, we have to know what the dynamics are that are going in the family systems that we operate in if we're really going to understand the behaviors that we're seeing. Now, you would call that little girl in psychological terms, you would call her the identified patient. She's the one that had the presenting problem. The parents didn't come to therapy and say we're dealing with addiction and we're fighting all the time. They didn't say that. They didn't. Does that make sense? Yes. So she's the identified patient. 
Yes. They're the real problem. The child is just reflecting it. She's just expressing it in her way. Totally. Yeah. So my big takeaway contention, and then I go into all kinds of detail in my book about this, is that America is a family system. And the people, we can look at it through the lens of family dynamics. And the people that are most in charge of policy and practice, in charge of the economics, in charge of our foreign policy, in charge of where our tax money gets spent, in charge of how we deal with minority populations, of our attitudes toward women and children, all of that, there's the top-down influence from those that we have empowered to be in charge, and there's the bottom-up influence of the electorate, right, and the varied electorate. And um, we are as healthy as those dynamics are. And my observation, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that our dynamics are mirror the dynamics of an abusive family. Yeah, Many. you actually put it, you express it uh, in, on your website by saying that yeah. we're, we're trying to overcome abuse as a nation. Yes. And, 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 and I think it's really, really serious that we understand that if we have people at the top who are fueling racial divide and hatred and fueling injustice for certain populations and fueling um, huge wealth gap, you know, disparity so that we have, um, I, I had gotten some statistics, but I didn't put them next to me, but um, there's something like 16 million children living in poverty in the United States today. One in six women is raped. And that's only what's reported. We, we have tremendous problems here um, to say nothing of, of, you know, I had shared this with someone else while I was while I was writing my book and uh, researching some of these statistics, literally across the top of my computer screen flashed a news item of yet another mass shooting. And this is becoming epidemic in our country. Um, and so I feel that what would really serve is to really understand our dynamics from what family therapy and family systems has to offer us. Mm -hmm. And one of the big takeaways of that, and then I'll let you jump back in, is that the most symptomatic among us, the mass shooters, for instance, are like the identified patient in the family that I mentioned. They're telling us the family is in trouble. And they're not the ones alone that can be treated. They, they need help for sure. And, you know, sort of in, you know, they're, they're calling us to what's not working in the family. And we need to look at the family if we want to understand how to stop mass shootings, for instance, does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying that these mass shooters are actually crying out for help because they come from a broken system within their Right. Family unit. Yes. Whether yeah. it's their own home. Right. Or, you know, but it's, it's, there's levels of this because 
you know, I think I think it's we're starting to understand that the people who do these mass shootings are not happy individuals. They're not feeling loved. They're not feeling like they have a, a meaningful, constructive sense of belonging. Um, often they've experienced abuse themselves without getting help. Um, I read somewhere that the young man who um, shot up the classroom in Uvalde had been called the mass shooter, the school shooter by other kids. So that's a call for help. Yeah. And so I think they're the symptom bears. And yes, we want to stop them. We don't want, we don't want to say, oh, you poor person, you know, we don't want to just say that, but we also do want to say that. You know, you're saying that basically we're not addressing the cause. We're dealing with symptoms. That's right. right? Yeah. Uh, you, blaming the symptom bearers. We're yes. blaming the symptom bearers, which is exactly what abusers do in their own families. Yes. Uh, you write in your website regarding your book uh, that society supports hatred and violence. And uh, the result is uh, severe mental health crisis of our country, right? Yeah. Um, you're basically saying that there really are no bad dogs. It's really bad dog owners. And the dogs reflect, you know, the owners, you know, problems, you know. Yeah. And, and, and it's generational. So there's really no bad dogs. We're just, but that, that takes a sort of a stretch of imagination because, you know, when, when we hear about 19 children being shot in their classroom, you know, we're appalled and we definitely want the the person to be held accountable or stopped or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most often a lot mm -hmm. of the shooters kill themselves, but, mm -hmm. yeah. um, but it's a chain of, you know, the, the bad parents, for instance, got that somewhere. Yeah. So, so one of the beauties of the best psychotherapy, and again, none of this is perfect. We don't, we're human beings are, you know, bound to um, make mistakes and learn and make mistakes and learn. Um, but one of the beauties of psychotherapy is that it is designed to break that cycle of abuse and violence. I, I hope you're right that uh, the beauty of human beings is that we make mistakes and learn because that's not always the case that I see some, I see stupidity by choice. And some yeah. of these people are just stupid. I mean, I, I get your point. You write yeah. that uh, America in therapy in your book entitled American therapy, that we're living in a climate of collective abuse. So mm -hmm. basically if we were to summarize, you're saying that society is what it is today because the family unit structure has broken down. Yes. And I see that from the bottom up and the top down. And I, I've, I, 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 I'm repeating myself so many times when I say this, but, you know, having been a therapist actually for over 30 years now, I've worked with so many people and I'm talking about, I, I didn't work with, you know, a, a highly disturbed population. I worked with ordinary people who have families, go to work, have hobbies, have friends, and the amount of suffering and abuse that people have sustained and live with and cope with and try to overcome is inordinate in our society. I mean, the stories, some of the stories that I've heard from people are hard to believe that, you know, in their wealthy mansion home and whatever, um, their father served their pet for dinner, you know? Oh, I believe um, you. I, I believe in the depravity of man. 
So uh, the degree of the depravity doesn't surprise me, uh, especially at my age. Then, okay, so we have you have identified the problem. So that leads us to the question of yeah. well, what is the solution here if we have this collective abusive uh, tendency in our country, in our culture? Yeah, yeah, and and if I can, can I say a few words? I don't want to say just a few words. Oh, please about, say what whatever that, you want. Yeah. Tell so some of the things that I talk about in making the correlation between what happens in an abusive family and what happens in abuse dynamics on a national level are some very uh, some very basic things that I just want to say clearly. And one of them is that abusers blame their victims. I beat her because she didn't clean her room. Um, does that make sense? And Absolutely. Then blame them for their symptoms. So she screamed and cried. And then I beat her because I told her if she didn't stop crying, I would beat her more. This is, this, these are classic abuse symptoms to blame your victims for the abuse rather than be accountable for your own impulses and then blame your victims for their symptoms. And, um, and, and so I illustrated this earlier and then they're the ones who cry for help in some way by their symptomatic behavior. And in an abusive society, they're either, you know, condemned like a mass shooter would be, or if they're peaceful demonstrators saying Black Lives Matter or Me Too or whatever, and they're just marching for basic human decency and values and they're tear gassed and they're shot with rubber bullets or they're arrested, then you have the same dynamic that you have in an abusive family, which is the abuser's target the truth tellers and they silence them the very best they can because that's how they keep power okay um, in that situation how mm -hmm. what would be the appropriate response by the institution well we're supposed to have freedom of speech and we're supposed to have the right to peaceful assembly so the appropriate response just like we're talking about the little girl that I mentioned earlier, is to listen to what she's saying. If people are demonstrating, let's just say for Black Lives Matter, because there's been excessive police force used against unarmed Black people in some instances, then we should be listening to what they're saying. We need to stop doing that. We need to stop. The little girl was saying, stop drinking, stop fighting. And the peaceful demonstrators are saying we need justice we need we need um we need to stop police brutality we need to stop discrimination we need to listen to the message the cry for help is a cry for help what's the help we should be listening to right would that also apply for people that storm the capitol because they are they're also uh what justice and that sort of thing should well, they be also heard too? I think they should be heard, but I also, if whatever their point of view might be, but the basic premise of hearing is nonviolence. If someone is a threat to other people, regardless of what their belief system is or their cause, they need to be stopped. I'm a well, during the Black Lives Matter, they hit, they struck people, they held, or they really punched out elderly people, that sort of thing. So. So they, those people should be stopped. Yeah. I, so it goes yeah. both ways, I imagine, what you're Absolutely. saying. I think a basic tenet hmm. of, of healthy family relationships, whether it's an individual family 
or a nation is nonviolent. Non I agree. So let me let me uh, see if if, it's, if we can tie what we're talking about now, which is the collective uh, abuse of our culture, into our prior subject matter about the voices that you've heard. Is there any connection between those? Is are we being collectively abused because of who we are in essence, or is this just part of this reincarnated experience that we have to go through? How do you harmonize that as a psychotherapist? Yeah. I think this is what I would say, and there's probably a lot to say about it, but I think this is what I would say, that my, my understanding is that ego consciousness, which is all about duality, let's just say it that way. It's all about right versus wrong, good versus evil, have versus have not, the masculine versus the feminine, um, the mundane and the spiritual. Everything is sort of divided. And in, in our personality consciousness, we keep seeking whatever half of any given duality we think is the better one to have, right? If we have less, we want more. If we feel very, um, you know, uh, undervalued, we want to be valued. If we just, does that make sense? And, yeah. and that's just the ping pong ball of our earthly existence as human beings living in personalities, and that why doesn't could, that happen though? I mean, if, if we know what we like, why doesn't that take place from a psychotherapist perspective? What I'm I'm not sure what you're saying. Why doesn't what take place? What you just mentioned that we want to be loved, accepted, that sort of thing. Why right. doesn't that happen from from a psychotherapist perspective? What what is the problem with human beings? I think because one of the major dualities that we're dealing with, because we're animals. I think it's because we're in an animal body is the duality of domination and submission. And that's part of our nature, the desire to conquer and subdue. Um, we, that's part of just eating, right? We have to, we have to get the deer or we have to grow the crops to survive. And it's part of being mortal. So the duality of domination and submission is part of our intrinsic personality nature. And it could go on like this, you know, it's gone on like this for probably as long as human beings have been on the earth, that some are powerful and some are forced to submit or follow or, um, you know, comply, right? And that's a dance that's been going on forever. And it could go on forever, except that we have reached this tipping point, I believe, and this is what I hear directly from the source that speaks to me. We And I think we know this now, but I heard this a long time ago before I was thinking about it. Um, we have reached this tipping point where our ability to conquer and dominate has taken us to the place where we've created weapons of mass destruction that could actually cause the human race to go extinct. That's why so it's called mad, <laughs> mutually so assured destruction. Yeah. So we're at this tipping point where all of our, you know, I mean, human beings are amazing. Our intelligence is amazing. I think our brain capacity in terms of, you know, exploring outer space and understanding how the body works and the ways that we're exploring how the psyche works. We're incredible. We have incredible intelligence. And, and the ways that that has been 
uh, and, and the art that we've created and the music, you know, just beautiful creative capacity and our capacity to love, our capacity to care, our capacity to give is beautiful and and growing, I think, for many people. And at the same time, at the very same time, because we live in this duality kind of state of consciousness, our ability to destroy is just as great. And they've from come the, together with our technologies. Okay. From the other side, from the voices that you've heard, why are we like that? Why are we dualistic? Why the dichotomy? So I can just tell you the way it was explained to me. And but I do want to preface it by saying that I'm not sure that in a physical form we're ever really going to get it. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> so does that make sense? Oh, oh profoundly. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so what I'm going to say is what was shared with me in a way that I think a human being can understand it. But I, I always feel like when I leave this body, I'm going to get it in a much bigger way. <laughs> so, so if I can communicate from the other side, I'll, I'll let you know, but. Um, can I get that in writing? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll do my best. Let me tell you. And, and I'll tell you, let me just Listen, say, I'm still waiting for our belt to come back and tell me what it's like on the other side. He hasn't done it yet. So. <laughs> well, you never know. Um, <laughs> you never know where we're going. Right. Um, Oh, gosh, I lost my train of thought there. No, so we're talking about what you had heard in terms of that question. So what I heard, the explanation that I heard was this, that we all came here ultimately through our many, many lifetimes. We all came here ultimately to be in, in a mortal form, the vehicle for the expression of some form of divine love. That's the goal for humanity. And that we took on the raw material of ego consciousness, which is where everything is separate. You know, good is separate from bad. Have is separate from have not. Um, men are separate from women. They're in two different bodies and two different sort of psyches and hormonal structures. Um, we took on the state of separation as our raw material out of which to create divine love. So if you, if you think of it this way, and I know that this is, this is a hard explanation because, because for me, it's even a hard explanation because of, because of the suffering that I see people go through and, you know, you, we can't help but say, why, why so much suffering? Um, but the, but the way I understand it is if you put wood in a fire you know, if you light a match and you light wood, you get enormous heat and energy. And the wood is transformed by fire into light and heat and energy, or an engine can do that, you know, to fuel something. And that ego consciousness is our raw material that we are forging into a divine consciousness. And that this lifetime, this is, I'll just share with you what I've been told, that this time on earth is, is where we're coming to a turning point. That we, we that ego consciousness actually is not intended to last forever. It has a shelf life. And how we know that 
is that by what I just shared with you earlier, that we can destroy ourselves and all life on this planet. And that's, that's letting us know that ego consciousness, if it goes on, you know, someone could just push the button but and we may. Yeah, but haven't we already destroyed ourselves a number of times? And this is not the first time that we've been around when we're running around the ballpark, right? Yeah. So yeah. is this, is no? this the, right? I mean, is this the case where the creator has a sense of humor and he just wants to put us <laughs> in a situation where we can't possibly win in the end? You know, I guess... I don't know the answer to that. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, from what I've read myself, it seems like there have been past civilizations that have disappeared that had high intelligence and technologies. Um, and so Atlantis. That, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and they're discovering ruins all over the earth that no one can explain how anyone was able to build them without technology. Egyptians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All those things that we see. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. I guess what I would say is that we, what what I do know is with, that we have the ability, we have the opportunity is really the word, to participate in the evolution of consciousness through ourselves. I agree. And that's what we can yeah, do. I agree. But here, my question is, hasn't that always been the case? And we ultimately failed each time when in the, when the, uh, Tire hits uh, meets the road. Mm -hmm. In other words, oh, uh, in other words, the the present human being that we are today, versus fifteen, twenty thousand, maybe hundred thousand years ago, are we that different? That the the crisis that we have today, that American therapy, the climate of collective abuse. I mean, is it possible that the climate of collective abuse always existed? That we're not particularly. It's not unique to our time frame. Or am I wrong? Well, you know, I don't know that I know the answer to that, but my, I suspect that you're right. I suspect that um, we have always been dealing with power struggles for for the main for you know one of the main things um, of who's who's going to control, who's going to have more access to wealth, who's going to um, have more access to sexual gratification, all of those things that are very animalistic in human beings' nature. So I. I would imagine that that's true. Um, I haven't asked specifically about the question that you're asking, so I don't really have, I don't know from that source what they would say. I'll try to venture into that place. But um, but what I would say is that this is what we have now. We do, we, and, and one of the things that I think might be different, and I don't know that this is true for all past civilizations, because I honestly don't know what was happening in some of those civilizations that have disappeared. But I think what, what I do understand from this civilization, this round of human incarnation is that we have part of that duality that we've been living in is the belief that certain beings are the have the access to god have the access to spirit and that um and that the rest of us depend on them to make a spiritual connection a lot of churches and religions have been based on that idea and that what's happening in the present time is that that connection to spirit is rising up through the population through the populace and so we all have an opportunity if we know and if we're have that's what our lifetime is about um 
the way that the, the way that it's been said to me, and I don't know if this is digestible to everyone, but is that the that the Christ consciousness, that consciousness of divine love and divine wisdom, um, is rising up through the populace. It's not the property of a priest. It's not the property of just a select being. And I see myself that way. I see myself as one person who got somehow was gifted the access to something greater than my own personality. And I don't think I'm alone. I think this is happening all over the world. We're going to cover that uh, raised consciousness in the next uh, episode. Okay. I want to put a tie, I want to put a bow on this uh, America in therapy, living in climate of uh, collective abuse before we end this segment. And that is, okay, so you have identified clearly an uh, ongoing problem and uh, you have understanding as to what's causing it. Is there yeah. some concrete steps that we can take as family unit or as a society that we can get out of this vicious cycle of victim yep. and blaming? Definitely. I mean, and those are some of the principles of the best psychotherapy. So tell me how much time we have, because I don't want to stop in the middle. Four minutes. Four, four minutes. Okay. Uh, well, I'll try. Um, so, uh, and if necessary, we'll just continue the next segment. That's okay. So take your time. We'll just cover okay. as much okay. as we can. So don't worry about it. Yeah. So the first part of my book is sort of a diagnosis. This is where we're at. This is what we're seeing. This is the danger we're in if we don't stop the cycle of abuse on a national level. And I really try to make that strong because I think it's really serious. The second part of my book is all about what we, what I have learned as a psychotherapist and as a person, you know, doing this work for so many years that is not being used that we already know helps. So I say helps because there's no sure cure for any one person or family, but we know some of the principles of what help families heal and what help individuals feel. So give us heal. some examples for yeah. such as. So the first thing is um, in a psychotherapy office, we create an environment of safety. It's safe to tell your story. It's safe to reveal things about yourself that you feel scared to say or ashamed of or things that you've never told anyone we make it safe and we make it safe by an attitude of non-judgment i look at you and i know that whatever in your life isn't working or whatever you've even done that you're not proud of you did the best you could with what you had and you're here to heal so the first element is we're all about repair. We're not about judgment. We're not about shame and blame. And we're not about punishment. We're about repair. So just like you take a, an engine apart because it's not working, you don't blame the piece that's not working. You try to fix it. And that's what the best psychotherapy has to offer. And that, that attitude alone would change our country. If, if we looked at, you know, if you knew your car engine was going to blow because it was missing a blah, blah, you wouldn't bomb it. You would take it to a repairman. And the only area of life where we don't do that is in human relations. We kill our enemies or our so-called enemies or the people that we think are going to take from us or whatever, or that we want to take from. Um, so, so, Psychotherapy 
operates on a whole other dimension of perspective of what what heals. People come to therapy to get out of war. So we will continue <laughs> when we're when we're okay. When but we're, if you if you have oil, we're going to get it one way or another. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you the best I can. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time on this segment, so we will pick it up on the next episode of some of the solutions yes. that my guest offers in the book entitled America in Therapy, Living in a Climate of Collective Abuse.